Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights. This week we're talking about the Uyghur Muslims in China. You may have read about this in the news. I'm going to talk to two experts on this issue to discuss what's going on and what can be done. Um, my two guests are Agnes Kalamar, who is a French human rights expert and special rapporteur for the United Nations on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions. And she's also the director of the Columbia University Global Freedom of Expression Project. And I'm also joined for the second time on this podcast by Shona Jolie QC, who is a barrister at Cloisters Chambers and also the chair of the Bar Human Rights Committee. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. There are places available to study law at Goldsmiths starting this September. You can find out more at www.gold.act.uk forward slash clearing. If you find this podcast useful and want it to continue, then please consider giving a few pounds a month via www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Thanks so much, um, Shona and Agnes, for, for joining me. It's extremely kind of you to take time out um, to talk about this important issue. I just wanted to ask you first to give me a minute or two on your respective backgrounds in this area and why you've professionally become involved. Um, can I start with you, Agnes? Yes, thank you very much. Um, special reporters who are the uh, independent experts appointed by the Human Rights Council of the United Nations have been uh, raising alarm and concerns regarding human rights violations in China more generally for uh, a number of years uh, and including on the Uyghur in particular. In fact, China is one of the countries uh, for which special procedures have issued probably one of the highest number of uh, urgent alert uh, and communication. Uh, and um, in, uh, in May of this year, with the decision of China to move forward or to propose a draft security law for Hong Kong, we felt that uh, another red line had crossed uh, and uh, interrogated ourselves, how many more red lines can China cross before we react in a more forceful fashion? And at this point, we decided that we will come together and issue uh, a joint statement, a very unprecedented step for a UN independent expert, but we felt we had no other options from the Uyghur situation to the Hong Kong situation to the most endemic human rights violations of civil, civil and political rights in China. We felt it was finally time for us to take a stand collectively against the situation in China with a particular focus on the Uyghur and on Hong Kong. Uh, Shona? Uh, thank you, Adam, very much for having um, me here as well to talk about this important issue. Uh, so I'm chair of the Bar Human Rights Committee of England and Wales, and we're a group of pro bono international human rights law barristers based in England and Wales uh, who specialise in looking at... Um, particular and considering and acting as lawyers and acting and reacting as lawyers to international human rights law violations or concerns. Uh, and we took the view uh, when we decided to start work on this project uh, that um, 
the world was too silent on the issue of the Uyghur Muslims in China. And uh, when we started this work, there was just beginning to be the investigations and reportage of what was happening becoming very widely known. Um, whereas for the last five years or so, this has been a subject that's been relatively quiet. One hasn't seen a huge amount of international engagement. And we were very worried that the international community would not act strongly enough in the face of these very serious allegations. And so we committed to produce a very high-level briefing paper on the options under international law, both in respect of China, but very importantly in respect of third-party states. So, in other words, what could the British government do? What could other governments in um, democratic countries do uh, to force China to uphold its uh, obligations under various features of international law? And so that's how I also became involved. Okay, and and thanks very much. And we'll we'll talk about the the reports um, that you published, um, that the Bar Human Rights Committee published um, in in a bit. And also, on the show notes to this episode, I'll put links to all of the documents and reports that we talk about. But Shona, for people who are listening, who have a sense that something very bad is happening in China involving the Uyghur population um, and have seen some of the the news and it has been more in the news in the last few weeks than I think it has been before but can you give a a high level summary of of what's happening and how we know what is happening? Yes I mean this matter has finally uh, hit the mainstream news but accounts have been unfolding uh, and emerging over the last few years and the accounts that we rely on for our report and I think um, are very widely shared and credible. There are three sources, really. One source are um, individuals, witnesses, survivors um, of, with direct experience of the situation. Another source, which has been of huge value also, is uh, covertly obtained evidence through um, journalistic investigation and studies. And then finally, official documents, including uh, something called the so-called China Cables, which are a series of um, highly classified Chinese government documents um, obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And these emerged in November 2019 through um, a chain of exiled Uyghurs. Uh, the Chinese government says that these documents are fake, but the um, consortium is extremely confident that the documents are genuine and have been verified by leading experts. So that's how we know or who, who our sources are for the allegations. Um, and then the allegations themselves are very, very wide ranging. They um, hit across um, a vast expanse of uh, international human rights uh, obligation and international criminal law. Uh, treaties. Uh, The allegations are very wide-ranging. They emerge from uh, issues as broad-ranging as uh, forced detention, forced labour, sexual um, uh, harm, all kinds of uh, physical and psychological harm alleged to amount to torture. There are all kinds of measures which target ethno-religious culture and practices. Um, Some of these are, 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 are quite extraordinary. Uh, So, for example, 
um, there's a program called Pair Up and Become Family in which Chinese Han men, Communist Party officials, are sent to stay with women whose male relatives have been detained and instructed to sleep in their beds as part of this program, which is said to promote ethnic unity. Uh, there's been the forced removal of children. There's been um, reproductive violence against women. And very recently, a um, very significant report by the scholar Adrian Zenz um, of women being for women being forced to undergo abortions and forced sterilization uh, so the range of alleged atrocities and violations is extremely wide and how many people are involved um and particularly in the i mean we, we've seen on the news about concentration camps so how, how have you described them re-education camps they're they're places where people are forced to go to um to be subjected to some sort of treatment how many people do we think are involved in those camps well, um, it's obviously impossible to be sure, but the um, numbers seem to suggest at least a million and potentially more. Um, and that figure, uh, if, if the figure is about 1.5 million and which there is some support for, that's equivalent to just under one in six adult members of the predominantly Muslim people of the, of the Xinjiang uh, autonomous region within China. So the numbers are very, very high indeed. And you talk there for a moment about the camps, and I just think it's important to understand this. Um, the Chinese authorities say that these are entirely voluntary. Having denied that they existed, they they now describe them as voluntary vocational skills training centres. Uh, and they, um, they describe their strategy, for want of a better word, uh, in Xinjiang as being a strategy to counter um, religious extremism and terrorism. Um, and the reality, um, however, is that the allegations far and wide suggest that individuals have been forced into those camps. Uh, indeed, there's, for example, leaked camp guidance manuals which say that there should be no escape from the facilities. Uh, and um, the facilities, there is, there is um, evidence of, for example, physical harm of individuals within those detention centres. There is uh, evidence uh, of or, or, or allegations of torture and sexual harm and psychological harm within those detention centres. Uh, and so um, there, there's also, um, for example, uh, reports of um, so-called graduating detainees, in other words, detainees who've transformed their belief. So in other words, they've gone through this transformation that they're required to do um, and then sent directly to work in factories um, in other parts of China as part of a wider government-led labour transfer scheme. And in fact, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has estimated that at least 80,000 Uyghurs were transferred out of Xinjiang and assigned to factories through a central government policy. So the allegations are really very wide ranging indeed and, and very, very grave. Agnes, can you um, speak to the what you've been doing and what you've been involved with and how the United Nations has been approaching this issue? Sure. So um, independent experts are appointed by the United Nations to monitor and report on specific situations or specific themes. Uh, when it comes to China, almost all of my colleagues uh, with different mandate being freedom of religion, freedom of expression, 
torture, um, trafficking, and so on and so forth, have had something to do with uh, the situation in uh, in China. Uh, as far as the Uyghur is concerned, um, you know the key issues have been. Uh, those uh, issues of um, freedom of religion uh, being repressed, uh, freedom of expression being repressed, uh, forced internment, uh, coercion of uh, various kind, and uh, the use of so-called extremist extremism or terrorism, uh, anti-terrorism regulation that are so broad uh, and so vague that uh, anyone. Uh, can be captured uh, by the um, by those uh, regulations. So a number of uh, special rapporteurs, independent experts, have been monitoring and reporting on the situation through various uh, communication to the Chinese government. I have to say that the Chinese government usually respond to the letters, but um, our view is that the response is not in good faith, in that there is always a complete rejection of any kind of allegation that have been made. And it is certainly the case when it comes to the Uyghur uh, and to uh, other situations uh, in China. The Chinese authorities have invited some independent experts uh, with um, a rather economic mandate but has closed the door to any uh, independent expert with a civil or uh, political uh, mandate. So it is not a dialogue between them and, and us, really. Uh, we felt very strongly that um, China's standing in the global economic system and in the global political system had basically shielded the government from open criticism. And as I have explained, uh, this uh, May, this June, uh, in view of the accumulation of allegations, the accumulation of demonstrated repression taking place uh, in China as well as in Hong Kong, we felt we could no longer be silent. We felt that um, uh, to be silent was to be complicit and that the international community in general, with a few exceptions, has refused to take a stand on the allegations and on the evidence that have been provided, particularly regarding the Uyghur. Uh, I think that as uh, independent experts, what we did was unprecedented. Uh, very rarely do we come together to um, make such a strong statement against a particular country. But more than 50 of us came together and we asked the international community to stop being silenced and to act in a much more resolute fashion. And what we've asked uh, them to do is uh, the following. The first thing is that we believe that the situation of the Uyghur and of Hong Kong and more generally of the violations in China deserve a special uh, human rights session. Uh, at the Human Rights Council, if not the General Assembly of the United Nations. There will be opportunities in September, and that's what we are calling for. The second uh, demand is, given the scale of the violations uh, and given the, the nature 
of the violations being alleged and being evidenced at the moment, we feel very strongly that the UN should appoint either a commission of inquiry or a special rapporteur or a special envoy to um, investigate the situation, in particular in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region and in Hong Kong, and report to the United Nations about the findings with proposals for uh, accountability. Uh, and then we are really calling on every and uh, all members of the international community to take a stand against the violations in China. And just to, just to step back um, in, in, and think about this from the sort of historic human rights terms, I mean, the, the, the kinds of behaviours that we're talking about, um, particularly sort of mass um, mass detention, um, so-called re-education, um, the attempts to, um, to take away people's religious beliefs, um, sort of th thoughts, crimes... Um, and, but also that the physical, um, the physical abuses that are happening, these are these are all the kinds of, sort of things that the the human rights, um, sorry, the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the human rights architecture designed after the Second World War and specifically the Holocaust were designed to prevent, um, and yet here we are. And 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 as the chair of a human rights organisation, um, Shona. Can you just speak to how the human rights framework can help in understanding what's going on, but also setting the boundaries of acceptable international behaviour? Asmi, yes, I mean, I think it's very important to set this within the context of international law, because uh, on many levels, as Agnes has been talking about, the international community, with some exceptions, uh, has remained silent for far too long. Uh, and one of the purposes of the report which we published was to set these um, horrific allegations within the context of the duties of states and not just China under international law. So stepping back just for a moment, um, there are a series of core human rights and international criminal law treaties um, to which um, which are relevant in, the, in these instances. So we have, for example, the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Uh, we have the Genocide Convention. We have the UN Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel and um, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment. Um, we also have the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Uh, and we also have the, the rights of the child, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, as well as the Slavery Convention. Now, China is a state party to all of those conventions. It's also a signatory, although it hasn't ratified, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And as a signatory, it is at least under an obligation to refrain from committing acts which defeat the object and purpose of the covenant. So, so that's the sort of, if you like, the international treaty architecture. But on top of that, China is also bound by what are commonly understood as the norms of customary international law, which include the prohibition of things like genocide, race discrimination, slavery, torture, those very crimes that uh, you were talking about that were that, that the international community after the Second World War sought to unify to say we will not tolerate this never again. 
And those obligations are owed to the international community as a whole. So what that means is that China's compliance with those obligations is the concern of all states. Um, so basically, I think to put this another way, under the treaties that, 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 that I've outlined, China is required to take all kinds of steps in respect of the documented violations or crimes against the Uyghurs and the other Turkic Muslims of the region. Um, one of the great difficulty of our age is that a huge amount of emphasis is placed by states on the definition of the word genocide. And there's a long history to this, and perhaps we can pick this up in another podcast on another day. But ultimately, one of the issues that, that seems to paralyze the international community is whether or not they can reach agreement as to whether or not genocide is taking place. Uh, and the uh, and just to give you to sort of to put that in its context, genocide is um, the commission of particular acts, including um, killing or um, physically uh, deliberately inf inflicting on group conditions, which will bring about the physical destruction of the group in whole or in part, or imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And there, there there are various parts to that definition, but. The key legal part to that is that the commission of those acts must have an intent to destroy. And that is a very tricky legal definition. And states get very bound up in whether or not they can make a proclamation that they think genocide is occurring in order to step in to say we have to prevent it. Uh, and I think, that's a, I think that can be a problem on the international stage. And what I think we need to... I think what the international community needs to uh, come together on is the fact that here we have allegations of the most egregious kind. We have allegations arising directly out of, if you like, the human rights architecture that was put in place post the Holocaust. And the allegations are widely documented and credible. So the international community is bound to act in a variety of ways in order to give effect not only to um, their own obligations under the treaty, but effectively to call China out on its obligations under the same. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Um, I was just um, reading something that Philippe Sands um, said about this question of whether it's genocide. Um, and he said, um, somehow there is this idea that if it's genocide, it's seriously bad. There's no question that what we know indicates that what's going on is against the Uyghurs is an international crime. The question is, why does it matter if we call it genocide? And is it less bad if it's just a crime against humanity? Um, I mean, and a crime against humanity is, it, it, surely, Agnes, a crime against humanity is enough to trigger a serious international response, not, not least because um, the... What I from what I understand about the the scholarship of genocide is that genocide yeah. 
um, doesn't happen overnight. It happens. There are stages towards genocide that involve, and one of them specifically is concentration. Uh, absolutely. I think independently uh, of the situation of the Uyghur, I think we need to be very clear that um, genocide is not the only reason for action by the uh, within the human rights community and the political community in general to use um, uh, the word genocide as if it was the only one uh, that should trigger an international outcry. Uh, personally, I have not, and we as special rapporteur have not referred to the situation as genocide because we do not have uh, sufficient evidence. Uh, second, the crime of genocide has been very rarely um, uh, the object of actual uh, criminal uh, act actions internationally. Uh, and there are many other crimes that are extremely serious and require uh, an immediate reaction and action on the part of the international community. What is being described as happening to the Uyghur right now is um, beyond um, many violations that have been reported in many parts um, of the world. The internment of individuals because of their religion. I mean, you know, whatever the motivation and the outcome of that process, it is a serious, a gross human rights violation that the international community should not tolerate. The systemic persecution and prosecution of individuals for their religious belief is something that is extremely serious and indeed could be an early warning to far greater crimes. And again, this is something against which the international community must take a stand and must act in an effective fashion. So I don't think we should um, link the reaction and the necessity of action, as shown as well demonstrated, to the existence of a genocide. There are sufficient evidence at this point pointing to serious uh, widespread human rights violations in China, and that should be the basis for a strong action and reaction by the international community, which has been thus far so intimidated by China, not to see in fear of China, that uh, the, the main reaction has been silence. We need to move beyond the wall of silence. We need to move beyond the indirect complicity into what's happening. Uh, and uh, that is why the work by Shona, the work by the special rapporteur, the work by civil society is so important. It is really asking the international community to stop being fearful, to stop being silent in front of the violations committed, yes, by a major economic power, yes, by a major global political power. That is why we need to take a stand, because if we don't take a stand now against what's happening to the Uyghur, we don't know what will the future hold for the international community as a whole, for the international system as a whole. So we've spoken about some of the 
things that um, international organisations might be able to do, um, that and, and particularly um, in the United Nations. Um, what do you think individual states can be doing? I, I, we've seen in the UK a little bit of movement um, in the form of uh, statements from the Foreign Secretary. Um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago um, that that this you know that, that calling out what's happening. But what what's the next stage, Shona, um, in terms of political activity? Um, and then also, um, could you just talk about whether there's anything individuals who are listening could do to prompt that to happen? Uh, there are a number of things that states can do. And the purpose of our report, our BHRC report, was to press states to look at the options that exist and to take cumulative steps to place pressure. China has sought to limit its international accountability in terms of what it's permitted itself to face on the international legal stage. Um, But there are still remedies and actions that domestic states can take. And one of the key uh, uh, ways in which the UK, for example, can act uh, is uh, in respect of the global human rights sanctions regulations, which were um, uh, which were passed just um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and which are which are or can be used to impose sanctions for exactly this level of violations of abuse, so the serious violations of abuse of the right to life, of torture of slavery uh, and um, of of, uh, forcing people to um, perform labour. So the mechanism is there under which individuals can be sanctioned. It is a strong, loud message. Uh, The Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has already placed sanctions on a number of individuals, I think 49 at last count, but none of those relate to the alleged crimes in uh, the Xinjiang region. So that is a very strong step that the British government can take. And there's certainly talk in the EU of expanding the possibility as well. Uh, We know that um, the talk in in the US is of doing the same thing now. So that is a a clear and targeted step that can be taken. Um, There are other uh, steps that can be taken. Um, Although China has prevented... um, interstate resolution under most of the treaties that I've talked about. There is, however, a mechanism under the Convention Against Race Discrimination for states to take a complaint. So that is something that the international community can consider doing. Similarly, there is a provision um, uh, in respect of um, the International Court of Justice, where international organisations can request an advisory opinion on matters of international law that are relevant, for example, the obligations of states under the treaties. It may not have legal weight, but it has tremendous moral weight and authority. And so individual states like the UK can press for that sort of uh, advisory opinion to be sought. Um, Similarly, the UK and other states uh, can seek to support the call that um, Agnes and her fellow special rapporteurs made Uh, to um, uh, consider supporting and assisting an independent and impartial UN mechanism, be that a special rapporteur or another mechanism. 
Uh, and so we know, for example, that Britain last year did uh, lead a call at the UN and did gather 23 countries together. Uh, and and uh, I, I think that number of states who've signed up to that has increased recently. But if Britain wants to lead, uh, then that is a way in which it can seek to lead. Um, the other uh, strong need right now is for the international community and individual states to call upon China to investigate and to permit in international investigators. Some of you may have seen the Andrew Marr show a couple of weeks ago where the Chinese ambassador came on and was shown drone footage, which is alleged to be of blindfolded kneeling Uyghur men being put on trains. Uh, And he simply denied knowledge of it. He didn't, didn't know what it was about and said that Uyghur people are happy people. Uh, and of course, um, all of this um, put off, with, and, and, and Anna's talked about the, the, the Chinese state responding to these allegations and just saying, no, this is completely wrong. They're all happy. They're all fine. Everything's good. Well, if that's true, let the international community in. And I think that the international community can do far more. The Foreign Secretary, the Prime Minister here, can do far more, far more to call for the mechanisms to allow independent investigations. Um, So there are a range of measures that can be taken. And if they are taken cumulatively and taken by countries together, these will amount to a form of exertion of pressure on China. Now, there are other matters relating to China, which Agnes has also referred to, uh, the the passage of the national security law in Hong Kong, which is causing real concern in and around Hong Kong. Um, There are real concerns about China's weight and the impact that it's having on people within its territories and it's not enough just to say we think these are egregious uh, allegations or we think these are very grave um, alleged crimes states must act and they have the opportunity to do so there are steps they can take as for individuals uh, one of the things that we think is very important is um, corporate responsibility and corporate accountability under supply chains. And what we saw a few days ago was um, a a very large, I think, 180 plus organisations coming together to call out supply chains in um, where forced labour in in Xinjiang province is used. Now, here in the UK, the Modern Slavery Act um, is limited in its um, use for accountability certainly can be used from a pressure reputational point of view and one of the things that individuals can do is learn more about these supply chains um, and the companies that are alleged to be involved in those supply chains and start to put pressure because that is a way in which um, uh, a sort of pressure can be applied. Um, And we know, for example, there's been some kind of horrific allegations of uh, involvement of, um, there was a shipment in the US, I think two weeks ago, involving um, tons of um, human hair that was allegedly from Uyghur people in Xinjiang. Um, We have heard about allegations about uh, Uyghur forced labour involved in the production of face masks. So the more publicity and the more sanction that is applied morally and exerted by the public on companies that are alleged to be involved uh, and indeed by the government um, the more awareness is created and the more awareness is created the less tolerance there will be but it is difficult governments have to act people can't act alone governments need to act i i I think that the um interestingly the, the the shipment of human hair 
um, which really seemed to to trigger a lot of um, responses from within the Jewish community and the um, and particularly the Holocaust education um, organizations just because it, it's you know you put these things together and there's so many parallels and uh, and really frightening parallels to what what happened in the 1930s and 40s um, to to the Jews of Europe but but obviously we, we've seen genocides and ethnic cleansing. Um, and these kind of mass abuses r- repeatedly um, since the Holocaust. I just want to finish with Agnes to to ask whether you have anything to add to um, to this this point about what can be done. And w- I wanted to ask you whether you think the international mechanisms are sufficient, in in your opinion, to constrain a state as big and as powerful as China. Well. Um- that's a very important question, and I think it is at the heart of um, the international system we wish to create uh, and the pragmatism that uh, we are confronted with, when, particularly when it comes to a country like China. You know, immediately after we issued our joint statement as a special uh, rapporteur, China itself went on uh, a a lobbying exercise within the Human Rights Council and got uh, 54 states uh, at that time to express their support to China, many of which, I should add, are uh, Muslim states uh, who, you know, insisted that there was nothing Problematic with uh, the situation of the Uyghur, and that um, uh, China uh, was uh, running uh, its, uh, you know, its country uh, as it should, according to the principle of uh, national sovereignty. So we are confronting, um, first of all, uh, a country that has an enormous cloud both economic and political over uh, a range of countries, we are confronting a country that has an enormous cloud within the United Nations. It is one of the largest donors to uh, the United Nations. Uh, And we are confronting a country that has not hesitated in the past uh, to uh, bully intimidate or create fear uh, within uh, uh, other countries to impose uh, its own views. It is also a country that has a clear uh, ambition as far as the international system is concerned. It is a country that has repeatedly expressed its uh, disapproval and its rejection of uh, civil and political rights in uh, general. It's a country that is insisting on uh, the primacy of national sovereignty. Um, So for all those reasons, taking a stand for the Uyghur, taking a stand for Hong Kong, is also a way for all of us to preserve, but most importantly, to construct a system that is fit for purpose. And a system that will remain silent in front 
of the multiple evidence of violations by China, a system that is failing to take a stand in front of the egregious violations reported against the Uyghur is a system that is not fit for purpose and is a system that is going to fail us all. At the moment, it's failing the Uyghur, it's failing the people of Hong Kong because too few states are prepared to take a stand. But in the short to the medium term, it is a system that will fail the entire community. So it is difficult to take a stand and to speak up and act against those violations. But it is essential that member states, companies and individuals do so for the people of Uyghur, but also for us. Because when we keep silent in front of repeated violations, when we keep silent in front of a state that is really daring us to stand up and to speak up, when we do not do so, when we are not bold and courageous enough to do so, we can be certain that us or the future of generations will be the victim as well of our silence. So whatever the cost associated at the moment with speaking up and taking a stand, trust me, the cost will be much higher if we keep silent. I think that's a perfect place to finish, although obviously this issue is one I will have to return to. Um, thank you so much, Agnes, for joining us from your holiday. And, I, and I'm really grateful for you to having, having taken time off. Um, Shona, it's been a pleasure to have you on again. Um, and thank you very much both. Thank you. Thank you, Ad. Thank you, Shona. Thank you, thank you Shona, for the excellent work. Um, I really love it. Love the, your work and love the way you present it. It's fantastic. Oh, Agnès, merci beaucoup. C'est super gentil. Mais uh, profitez de vacances maintenant et à la prochaine. So thank you very much to my guests, Agnes Kalamar and Shona Jolly QC. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. There are places available to study law at Goldsmiths starting this September. Find out more at www.gold.act.uk forward slash clearing. If you want to support this podcast and make sure it continues and can carry on producing interesting and informative human rights interviews, then please consider giving a few pounds a month at www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Thank you very much to the Better Human Podcast research producer, Natasha Holcroft-Eames, and the Better Human Podcast editor, Sammy Bruff. Until next time, I'm Adam Wagner. This has been the Better Human Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.